A young girl driving home from an office Christmas party was shot in her car and left for dead on the side of the road. A nurse fails to report to work and is found days later in a retaining pond on her property, wearing clothes her family says did not belong to her. Was her death really an accidental drowning? A mother trusts some former high school classmates and winds up dead at the bottom of a rocky cliff. Her alleged killer still walks free some 30 years later. Two separate women decided to explore areas on the other side of the country from their homes in North Carolina and were never seen again. There was something so compelling about the cases discussed today that they were featured on a popular national syndicated television show. And while they include stories other than just missing people in North Carolina, I thought it would be interesting to explore the details behind why these cases eventually made their way onto a true crime show that is now available on several different streaming services. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 12, North Carolina Cases That Were Featured on Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries was a true crime documentary television show that aired in the United States between the years 1987 and 2010. It ran for nine seasons on NBC, hosted by Robert Stack, and then moved to CBS for its 10th season, where it only ran for two more seasons before being canceled by the network. The Lifetime Network picked it up in 2000, where it ran from July 2001 to September 30, 2002, when host Robert Stack became ill and eventually passed away. But Unsolved Mysteries got yet another chance when Spike TV revamped the series in 2007, this time with actor Dennis Farina taking over as host. It featured repackaged episodes with updates on older cases and new content added in. This run of the series ran until 2010, when it was canceled yet again. Personally, the show always intrigued me, and the image of Robert Stack wearing his beige trench coat with the collar turned up and the ominous theme music still gives me goosebumps. I remember watching the show as a teenager and then enjoying the reruns in between classes while I was in college. I've always been interested in both the true crime cases it featured, along with the bit of paranormal stories sprinkled throughout. Netflix revamped the series this past summer, and although the format is a lot different, I still recommend watching it and look forward to upcoming episodes. The Generation Y podcast episode from July 19th features an interview with one of the original producers from the show, so I recommend checking it out if you're a fan. Since I've been nostalgic and watching old episodes on Amazon Prime and Hulu, I thought it would be a good fit for this podcast to go back and explore cases from the Carolinas that were featured on the show over the years. For this episode, I'm going to cover North Carolina cases first, and then save the South Carolina ones for a later date. Let's get started. Rhonda Henson's story first aired on the show on November 15, 1989. 
Rhonda was a 19-year-old young woman from Valdez, North Carolina, who died on December 23, 1981, while on her way back from her company's Christmas party. She was less than a mile from her home. On the night that Rhonda was killed, she went to a friend's house, and from there they drove to nearby Hickory to attend the Christmas party for Hickory Steel. They left the party around midnight, and Rhonda retrieved her car, a beige Datsun 210, from her friend's house and continued on home. After driving down Interstate 40, she exited at the Mineral Springs Mountain Highway exit. It was determined that a shot from a high-powered rifle entered through the trunk of Rhonda's car, traveling to the front seat and piercing Rhonda's heart and lungs. When Rhonda was found, she was lying on the ground, on her back, beside her vehicle, which had rolled off the road and into a ditch. Based on her injuries, investigators believe she would have been immediately incapacitated and unable to climb out of the car after being shot. Her mother wondered if her behavior was tied to her death. Rhonda had been hesitant about driving places alone, asked her mother what she thought about dating a married man, and kept waking up all hours of the night and showering. An eyewitness account from the early morning hours when Rhonda died puzzled investigators. Driving down that same road, a witness said they saw her beige car off the road, headlights still shining, with a man pulling a young woman from a car. The eyewitness thought it was a couple either arguing or that had too much to drink, so they didn't think anything of it and continued to drive away. Investigators put out a description of the man, as well as the man's car, on the local news stations, but no one ever came forward. Over the years, I've often thought about this case and wondered about it, as the local newspaper continues to run stories. Rhonda's parents have always strongly felt someone in their small community knew what happened, but were too scared to come forward. Then I came across a blog called Defrosting Cold Cases, run by true crime writer Alice DeSterler, that gave a pretty reasonable explanation of Rhonda's death. DeSterler shared information that the Burke County Sheriff's Department saved the sweater Rhonda had been wearing when she died. In recent years, they've been able to retrieve touch DNA from it, but haven't gotten any hits after running it through the state and national DNA databases. DeSterler proposed on her blog that a random passerby may have come across Rhonda right after the accident, pulled her out of the car, saw the bullet wound in her chest, and became scared and left. As Valdez is a pretty rural area, the shot could have come from someone hunting in the early morning hours of December 23rd, or someone shooting off their guns, unaware that they would accidentally shoot a lone car coming up the road. After all, who would have known exactly what time Rhonda would be driving down that rural road that evening? She could have stayed at the party longer or planned to stay at her friend's house. The shooter may still be alive and well in the Valdez community, but fearful of coming forward because Rhonda was beloved by so many and the case ended up gaining a lot of national attention. If you have any information concerning the case of Rhonda Henson, you can contact the Burke County Sheriff's Office at 828-438-5506 or Crime Stoppers at 828-437-3333. Up next is the case of Debbie Wolfe, who first went missing in Fayetteville, North Carolina in December of 1986. She was featured on Unsolved Mysteries a few years later on December 19, 1990. Debbie was a 28-year-old nurse at the Fayetteville Veterans Administration Medical Center when she went missing. 
She was last seen at work on the afternoon of December 26, 1985. She lived in a cabin on the outskirts of Fayetteville with her two dogs in a somewhat isolated area. When she didn't show up for her shift at work the next day, her family was contacted. A few of Debbie's immediate family members decided to ride out to Debbie's cabin and make sure she was all right. What they found there was troubling. It was obvious the dogs hadn't been fed. There were beer cans scattered all in various areas on the property. Her car was parked in an area it wasn't normally parked in. Debbie's nurse's uniform was in a heap on the kitchen floor and her purse was crammed into a corner of her waterbed. There was also an unusual message on the answering machine, asking why Debbie had missed so many days of work. She had only missed one shift at that point. Her family couldn't find signs of Debbie anywhere on the property. They also searched the area around a retaining pond located there, but didn't find anything. It seemed as if she had simply vanished. When Debbie's mother, Jenny Edwards, tried to file a missing persons report, the police told her Debbie hadn't been missing long enough. Her family needed to wait 72 hours. So the investigation into her disappearance didn't officially begin until December 31, 1985. On New Year's Day, Jenny asked two divers she knew, Kevin Gorton and Gordon Childress, to search the pond near the cabin. It didn't take them long to find Debbie's body submerged there, and both men said she was partially hidden inside a 55-gallon barrel at the bottom of the pond. The autopsy report ruled Debbie's death a drowning and found no drugs or alcohol in her system. The police determined Debbie must have been playing with her dogs on the edge of the pond and fallen into it and drowned. Her family always had other ideas, though, which is what led to the segment being aired on Unsolved Mysteries. According to an article written by Michael Futch that ran in the Fayetteville Observer in 2016, there were conflicting reports on whether or not the barrel Debbie was found in even existed. The divers said they saw it. The police didn't collect a barrel as evidence and claimed they didn't see it. They thought the divers may have imagined Debbie was partially hidden in one because she had a large coat on that may have obstructed the divers' views underwater. Jenny Edwards and other family members remember there being a barrel on the property. Debbie stored firewood in it. They could even see the indentation of where it had been in the yard. But it was gone, as if it had never existed at all. Also, when Jenny Edwards got a look at the clothes Debbie was wearing when she was found, she was surprised. All the clothes were too large to be Debbie's, including the shoes and the bra. One item was a Pittsburgh Steelers shirt that no one had ever seen Debbie wearing. There's also the place where Debbie drowned. The reporting from the Fayetteville Observer noted that Debbie was found in about five and a half feet of water, about 30 feet from the bank of the pond. If she had fallen into the water while playing with her dogs, it wouldn't have been too difficult for her to get back up out of the pond and to safety under those conditions. She also only had about a half tablespoon of water in her lungs at her autopsy, leading her family to believe she had died before her body went into the water. When the reporter reached out to the sheriff's office assigned to the case, he was told all the records related to Debbie Wolf's death had been purged because the death was listed as accidental. All the original investigators on the case had also retired, so no one was willing to speak on record. Jenny Edwards believed someone Debbie worked with at the hospital had murdered her. 
Debbie's supervised volunteers, and one of them had persistently asked her to go out with him. He told her he knew where she lived. He obtained her home phone number and called her frequently. But when police questioned him, he had an alibi, refused a polygraph, and left town shortly after. The other volunteer had dated Debbie briefly before she broke things off. Jenny believed he may have been the man on Debbie's voicemail. Police were never able to find any evidence linking him or the other suspect to Debbie's death. We'll probably never know whether the barrel existed or if it was removed from the scene on purpose or from someone who had something to hide. Debbie's family members have all passed away at this point, leaving no one to continue searching for answers. Before we continue with the show, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. By day, I work as a journalist and magazine editor, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing creative nonfiction, you should check out the contests over at WOW Women on Writing. The deadline for the latest contest is October 31st, so you have plenty of time to work on your entry. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $500. WOW allows a maximum of 300 entries. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. I'd like to talk about Sherry Hart next. Her case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on December 1st, 1995. Sherry was a recently divorced 24-year-old young mother who had moved back to live with her parents in West Jefferson, North Carolina, when she went missing after an evening out in January of 1984. For months, her family wondered what had happened to her, and then her body was found on December 10th, 1984, at the base of a cliff near an area called Jumpin' Off Rock. Investigators received some tips about Sherry's murder after a $5,000 reward was publicized. They discovered two local men named Richard Baer and Jeffrey Burgess had met up with Sherry the night she went missing and talked her into cruising around town with them. At some point during the drive, Richard made a sexual advance towards Sherry that she rebuffed. Jeffrey told investigators that Richard struck Sherry on the back of the head with a pistol and had Jeffrey drive them to the nearby Jumpin' Off Rock. Richard then dragged Sherry out of the car and pushed her off the cliff, where her body was found all those months later. Jeffrey said Richard threatened to kill him and his family if he told anyone. Both men were arrested, but before they could stand trial, Richard Baer simply walked out of the Wilkes County Jail when the jailer wasn't paying attention. That was on July 17, 1985. Because Jeffrey was supposed to testify against Richard at the trial, he was released from jail and never served time for his role in Sherry's murder. He passed away in 2012 after serving time in and out of jail for various drug charges. To this day, Richard Baer has never been captured. But investigators say Bear's sister romanced a guard at the Wilkes County Detention Center and convinced him to look the other way while Richard Bear escaped. That was June 30, 1985, more than 30 years ago, and Richard Bear is still on the run. No one has ever served time for Sherry's murder. The most fascinating thing about this case are the rumors that have persisted over the years that Richard has frequented his hometown, even dressing up in disguise. According to an article published in the Wilkes Journal Patriot, investigators have received tips that Richard had dyed his hair blonde or red 
sometimes dresses as a woman, and may have a tattoo of a panther on his right forearm. At one point, they suspected a man living in Caldwell County of being Richard, but could never substantiate that. They've gone so far as to stake out funerals of Richard's family members to see if he shows up in disguise, but so far have uncovered nothing. Richard Lynn Bayer is still considered wanted by the FBI, and anyone with information on his whereabouts are asked to contact their local FBI office. There are two other young women with ties to North Carolina that have been featured on Unsolved Mysteries, but they actually went missing from other states. I'd still like to mention them, though, because they still remain on the list of North Carolina missing people. The first is Leah Roberts, whose disappearance was featured on the show on August 13, 2001. Leah was a 23-year-old college senior at NC State University when she decided she wanted to take a break from school. Her parents had both passed away, and according to Leah's friends and family, she wanted to do some soul-searching. According to an episode of Disappeared that I also watched about Leah's story, she didn't really tell anyone the details of the road trip she had planned. Her roommate found a note in Leah's bedroom with cash to pay her part of the household bills. The note also read in part, I'm not suicidal, the opposite. Remember Jack Kerouac? From what Leah's siblings could tell, she packed up her car with most of her prized possessions, including her cat, B, on March 9th, and began making the drive out west. On March 18th, some joggers came across Leah's 1993 white Jeep Cherokee in Mount Baker National Forest, about 85 miles north of Seattle. The Jeep had gone off the road and ended up at the foot of the Cascade Mountains. Investigators called to the scene were puzzled by what they found. The windows of the Jeep were broken out and blankets had been placed in the window areas as if someone had been using the Jeep as a shelter. The Jeep was also full of Leah's belongings, from cat food to her guitar to $2,500 in cash and an engagement ring of Leah's mother's that family and friends said she always wore. There was also a cat carrier, but no sign of the cat or Leah. Although investigators were certain someone would have been injured if they had been inside of the Jeep when it went off the embankment, they didn't find any evidence of blood inside. Inside the Jeep, there was a gas receipt for a fuel purchase from Brooks, Oregon, made on March 13th, as well as a movie ticket stub from a nearby mall in that area. One man later investigated, after her car was discovered, said he had seen Leah in a Bellingham, Washington restaurant in the days before she disappeared. He was questioned and then released afterwards. Another tip came in from a man who claimed to have seen a woman matching Leah's description at a gas station in Everett, Washington in the days following the discovery of her car. He said she seemed disoriented, but he called anonymously to leave the tip and hung up before police could gather any more information. This left investigators to wonder if Leah was in fact injured when her car went over that embankment and maybe caught a ride into town. They also considered that she may have had amnesia and couldn't recall her identity or where she was from. Even though her siblings traveled to Washington State to participate in a ground search looking for signs of Leah near the crash, they never found her. In 2006, investigators took another look at Leah's car, still in evidence, and found 
that a wire to the starter relay had been cut. 19 years later, Leah Roberts remains missing. And finally, there's the case of Kristen Modafferi. Her story was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on June 20th, 2001. She had also been a student at NC State University who headed west. After her freshman year, she enrolled in a photography course at the University of California, Berkeley, and rented a room in a house in San Francisco. She got a few part-time jobs to help support herself, including one at a coffee shop at the Crocker Galleria in the heart of the city's financial district. She had only been in California a short time when she went missing in June of 1997. Her parents, Bob and Debbie Modafferi, who lived in Charlotte, tried to call her a few times and became concerned when they couldn't reach her. Her roommates told them she hadn't been home for a few days, and her parents were worried because that meant she had missed her first day of class at UC Berkeley. They booked a flight from Charlotte to California and spent time talking with the Oakland police about filing a missing persons report. Unfortunately, because Kristen was legally considered an adult, police didn't think they needed to begin a search for her so soon. When they did begin questioning her co-workers a few days later, they mentioned Kristen had asked for directions to a nearby beach. A search with bloodhounds tracked Kristen's scent from a bus stop at the mall to a beach about seven miles away. Then the trail ended. One co-worker at the coffee shop mentioned he had seen Kristen walking with a blonde-haired woman at the mall about 45 minutes after her shift ended, but police were never able to determine who that woman was. There was also a man named John Anuma who made a call into a local TV station alleging that Kristen was killed as part of a love triangle with two other women. When police did a little digging, they found that Onuma had a history of placing classified ads and trying to assault or rob women he met through them. According to an article in the San Francisco Gate, when the Moda Ferries searched Kristen's room, they found a copy of the weekly newspaper, the San Francisco Bay Guardian, stuffed in a trash can with a personal ad circled. The ad read, Friends, females seeking friends to share activities, who enjoy music, photography, working out, walks, coffee, or simply the beach, exploring the Bay Area. Interested? Call me. The Moda Ferries contacted the paper, but the classifieds department couldn't determine who had placed the ad. If Kristen had placed it herself, maybe John Onuma came across it and used it as a ruse to meet up with her. Investigators decided his tip about the murderous love triangle was bogus, and he likely was making an effort to gain attention or throw them off the right path of the investigation. Kristen's family believes he should be considered a person of interest. Maybe Kristen actually made it home that night after her excursion to the beach. In 2015, cadaver dogs helped locate the presence of blood in the basement of the home Kristen was living in when she went missing. Another article in the San Francisco Gate interviewed a friend of the Motiferi family, Dennis Mann, and a retired police sergeant who offered the services of his cadaver dog. Human decomposition present here, 100%. Oakland police invited specialists from Chico State they used ground-penetrating radar in the basement. Based off of that, they found an area of interest and came back and performed a dig, which didn't reveal anything. Dosti returned in February to re-examine the property with a forensic scientist. Dr. Arpad Voss, seen here in a TEDx talk, specializes in human decomposition. He pinpointed an area between the two houses 
at the base of these steps behind the fence. That we feel is the source and most likely uh, Kristen's blood there. It is human uh, blood, but there's no burial. We don't get an indication of a burial. It's more of a crime scene. The DNA that they were finding within these human decomposition chemicals was a match to our daughter Kristen. They used a detection device developed by Dr. Voss, but the details are highly guarded as it's currently under patent review. Another interesting note. When Mann canvassed the neighborhood Kristen had been living in, he found out the home she was renting a room in had been located next door to a halfway house for convicted drug offenders and other felons. The case remains open. Kristen's loved ones are still hoping for closure in the case, even if Kristen is no longer alive. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram and Facebook, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.